Today's text is Luke 1, 1 through 4. We're reading from the NIV, so please read along in your Bible or it will be on the screen above. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Thank you, Lori. Hello, I'm, I'm Pastor Ross, if you don't know me yet, and we get to start today our sermon series in Luke. And I'm very excited for this. Um, why, why you ask, might we have chosen this book? Um, well, we, we preach from different parts of the Bible. We want our people to hear all of the Bible, and we haven't spent any time in the Gospels yet. And so we're excited to go and hear a story about Jesus' life. And this story specifically because we see Jesus doing a lot of what we want to do as a church, which is connecting with the hurting, the broken, those who are left out. And so I'm just so excited for what God is going to do among us through this book that we get to look at together. Um, so we are going to go through chapters 1 through chapters 9. Um, for this first section, and then we're going to take a break from Luke. So this is going to take us six months, so we're going to spend six months looking at, or actually even more than that, we're going to go all the way till June. So all the way till June, we're going to look at these first few chapters from Luke and see what God has for us. Now, each gospel has its own characteristics. Like, you read them, and some of the stories overlap, and you're like, oh, this story sounds similar to this story. But the more time you spend in each gospel, the more you find that each one has its own characteristics. And the Gospel of Luke is especially about God's plan. See that? It's God's plan. And we see most clearly his plan in the book of Luke in chapter 19, verse 10. I think that verse can come up on the screen. It says, For the Son of Man came to, came to seek and to save the lost. We get to see in the Gospel of Luke God's plan to encounter and to save specifically lost people who need to be saved. And throughout the gospel, this book, we see him to come and encounter people whose society would say, these people are far from God. These are not the kind of people we'd expect to see at church. These are not the religious people who would typically expect to have a relationship with God. Experience, he comes across tax collectors, promiscuous people, comes across people who cheat other people, who lie, who have diseases and are kicked out of the society. He encounters and elevates women who are often neglected in that time period. A lot of people say that Jesus came to bring an upside-down kingdom. I wonder if anyone's heard that term before. It's a kingdom that's upside-down from the crooked and bad kingdoms that we people tend to make. So we see our society... And there's a lot of upside-down things in our society, or bad things in our society and in other societies. And Jesus comes to overturn those things and bring in a, a good kingdom. So this is the story we're going to look at together. The story of Jesus coming to seek and to save people like you and me. And that's the thing, if we read this gospel closely enough, we really realize that we're the lost. We're not actually as good off as we thought we were. But Jesus came for people like us. 
And now for the rest of the sermon, I want to focus on these first four verses that we heard read. I want to confess to you that I have seasons where I feel doubt and discouragement. And I know you're not supposed to say this as a pastor, but sometimes I feel like, man, I don't know if I'm a Christian. Man, God in Christianity doesn't feel real right now. I feel these when I, when I feel emotionally discouraged and depressed. So I just, everyone knows I, I came back from Africa just a few weeks ago. And that trip was very emotionally and spiritually draining. And I found myself having doubts. And I just wonder if anyone else ever experiences that. Maybe you don't feel like you're allowed to voice that. But I think our text speaks to doubters today. I think our text speaks to the discouraged today. You see, I want to answer the question, how do we have certainty in this book? How can we know that the things that God has told us are true and they are real? Like maybe some of you heard, heard it said it's a leap of faith. Right? You just have to check your mind at the door. Just ignore all reason and ration. Just put your blind trust in this book. Is that what we're supposed to do? That'd be too bad if it is. Because Jesus asks us in this book to do really radical things. He asks us to deny ourselves, to be willing to risk and give up everything we have, everyone we love, and even in our own lives to obey him. And so it's not like you can kind of believe this book and kind of do this book. This book either owns you and masters you and you obey it, or you don't. And so if you're not certain about this book, what do you think you're going to end up doing when it asks you to do something hard? If you're not certain about Jesus, what do you think you're going to ask what do you think you're going to do when he asks you to do something that you don't want to do? What do you think you're going to do, maybe, when you face a jail cell, or worse, for putting your trust in Jesus Christ? It doesn't take long before making disciples costs you a lot, and more than you think. Now, I want to say a quick word about the author. Before we get into explaining the verses. So this book was written by a guy named Luke. And um, I'm sure you could figure that out pretty easily. Um, and Luke was a, a Gentile physician. Um, he was a close associate of Paul's. Um, I think there's a verse, Colossians 4, that says that this guy is actually a doctor. So Luke is a very intelligent man. He's not in the ministry. That's not his first job. Um, he's a doctor working a secular job. Um, which, actually, there's no such thing as a secular job, but that's another sermon. Um, and, and, he, and he feels this call from God to, to write this book about Jesus. Now, you, as we read through this book, we can sense this orderliness, this beauty, this precision in this book that's coming from this medically trained mind, this mind that has been trained to think. And here's something that surprises me, is that Luke probably never met Jesus. Luke probably never met Jesus. So how did he write his book? What did he do? Well, we find out that he talked to eyewitnesses who knew Jesus. So Luke carefully went around Jerusalem and talked to those who walked with Jesus and who knew Jesus and learned about Jesus 
and wrote this book for us. And I'm just struck at, like, what a scene that must have been. Do you imagine going up to James or John or Peter? Man, let me, let me take you to a coffee shop. And, like, you're sitting there across the table, and you look Peter in the eye and say, tell, tell me about your time with Jesus. And you just get to listen to him tell this story of this man who came and changed his life. This man who came and found him fishing and not doing anything particularly great with his life. And the Lord said, I want to make you a fisher of men. You get to hear his story. And so many more like it. And then he spends months and years writing this book to us. And I just, I just want us to just marvel at the gift this book is. Like, thank you, God, for Luke. Thank you for this gift. I mean, it's, it, let's not take it for granted that we even know who Jesus is. He lived 2,000 years ago. And if you're questioning, does God want you to know who Jesus is? Why do you think he raised up this man to write this book? Why do you think he preserved it? It is no small miracle that the words of this book have been preserved the way they have been through history. And here, and here I ha we have this book right in our hands that tells us who Jesus is. So thank you, God. Thank you for this book that you've given us through Luke. Now, the next thing I want to talk about is, um, is the recipient. Or, um, so he wrote the book to a guy named Theophilus. And, and maybe, maybe Theo's excited. But I actually, I couldn't really figure out who Theophilus was. No one really knows. Um, his name means lover of God. Um, and he was probably, maybe, maybe like, he calls him most excellent Theophilus, so maybe he was a ruler of some kind or an honorable person. But maybe not. Maybe he's just an ordinary person. Um, I really like what one commentator had to say, which was that it's, it's a good chance that Theophilus was either a new believer or he was someone who was thinking about following Jesus and who hadn't yet. And so I just want to just encourage anyone here who feels like, I have no idea what's going on. What are these weird religious people doing? Don't feel discouraged. This book is written so that you can learn more about Jesus. This book has learned to teach us what he's like and who he is. So just stick with it. Come on this journey with us. Now Luke, when he wrote this book, he said there's many other accounts. So um, can we please bring up the first three verses? Um, he writes, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have... Um, been carefully investigating everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, O most excellent Theophilus. So what he does is, is Luke hears or reads these other stories that other people have written, and I don't think he's like, man, these stories are bad, I gotta write a better one. He's like, man, I really want to write a story. Like, I really want you to have a story too. And so he sets out, and he writes one, and um, and as we, as we work through this book, we find out that there's, there's lots of stories in this book that we don't find in other Gospels. And so Luke, as he's, as he's talking to other people and encountering other people, is finding things that other people didn't write. 
So now um, I want to talk about the purpose of this book. So we talked about the author, and we talked about the recipient. Now, like, what's the reason he wrote this book? When you read a book, you want to you know, like, what's the reason I'm reading it? We don't just want to be doing nothing. Like, we want to have a, a good purpose for why we're, we're reading it. And if you look at the Bible, if you look at verse 4, I love how he doesn't hide it. He tells us exactly what his reason is for writing this. He says, so that you may have certainty concerning the things that have been written. So that you might know what you have heard. This is encouraging to me. God doesn't want any of us to doubt. He doesn't want us to live in despair. He doesn't want us to live second-guessing what we've heard. He wants you to be confident. He wants you to feel like this is a foundation I can build my life on. He wants you to feel so sure that when you suffer, that when this costs you something, you can rely on it and you can trust it. Who needs something you can trust when life is easy? Like, if you need something you can trust when life gets hard. When your friends and family don't come through. When your wife doesn't come through. When your husband doesn't come through. When whatever you're hoping it doesn't come through, you need something you can trust in. And God wants us to have that certainty. And what a free and joyful experience that is. Now, I want to ask the question, how does Luke go about creating that certainty? What does he do? And I, 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 when I read those first three verses, I can see he does a couple things. First, he says, I have interviewed the eyewitnesses. And then he also says, I have written an account that he calls it an orderly account. And what I think he means by that is, like, I've written a story that will touch your heart, that will compel you to believe in this. So let's talk about um, the eyewitnesses first. Eyewitnesses are still today recognized as a foremost source in discerning truth. If one of us was on trial, eyewitness testimony would most likely determine if you went to jail or not. In Luke's day, eyewitness testimony is basically an even stronger evidence than it is today. This is how all the historians went about arguing their task, is they said, these are what the eyewitnesses say. And if you think about it, that's actually a really strong defense when the eyewitnesses are still living. Like, I could write a book and say, hey, all the eyewitnesses say that. Well, guess what? You could go ask the eyewitnesses. So Luke clearly has confidence that he is not making stuff up, that he is writing things that people can go and test and find out if he's making it up or not. Now, we don't have these eyewitnesses today, which is too bad. We can't go ask the eyewitnesses that he asked. But we have another reason for confidence in them is that we can see what kind of lives they lived and if they were reliable witnesses or not. Think about it. You listen to other people every day, and there's people you trust more and people you trust less. And how do you determine who you trust more? Is it not the integrity of their character? Is it not if they tell the truth? Is it not if they are people 
who have been consistent and faithful. And we may not be able to talk to these eyewitnesses that have Luke interviewed, but we can examine the quality of their lives. We know from history that they were just 12 ordinary men who were doing ordinary jobs until they met this rabbi named Jesus. And they start following him around, and they're pretty scared and confused and incompetent. But after he dies and rises from the dead, they're completely transformed. They become bold men who are telling all kinds of people about Jesus. They start this new religious movement that has like no precedent and no reason why it should be around. But all of a sudden, people are believing it, people are listening to them, and it's spreading to different places, and it's still around today. And you might think, well, man, they were just out for their own gain. Like, they were just doing this so that they could become popular and they could be famous. But that doesn't make sense because some of them died. Like, why would anyone die for something that they believe to be false? It works if I'm telling a lie that makes me more popular, more successful. Until that lie costs me my life, then I probably wouldn't tell it anymore. But Jesus' own brother named James, who refused to believe in him when Jesus was, was before Jesus died and rose again, becomes this leader in the church, is faithful to the message that Jesus is the Messiah, and he dies for it. And one of Jesus' closest friends named Peter, he's the leader of the disciples. Tradition says that at the end of his life, he was killed for his faith. Except for, he didn't think he was worthy to die the same way as Jesus did. And they said they were going to crucify him. So he asked them to crucify him upside down. That's the kind of witness we're talking about. These are not people not to trust. These are people who died in horrible ways because of this message. So when Luke says, I asked the eyewitnesses, that is not a small word. That is not a small story. That is not something to dismiss. This is probably the most compelling and substantial possible evidence there could be that this book is not making things up. If they were making things up, they would not have gone to the lengths they did and suffered the things that they did for this message. There is solid reasons to trust this. And now more than that, we come um, to our point in history, and we have something that the people back then didn't have. It's, um, they, we have a science called archaeology where people go into the past, and they examine past history to see, you know, is this real? Is this right? Is this source accurate? And for a long time, people mocked Luke's gospel as being historically inaccurate. Like, this is not real scripture. This is not true. He gets historical details wrong. One of the examples was the, from Luke 2.2. 2. If you read this gospel, you'll find that Luke actually is very careful to name historical people and details. And one of the things he names is, he says that guy named right there is Quirinius was governor of Syria. And people are like, ha, Quirinius was governor 20 years later. 
not during Luke. He screwed up. He's not an accurate historian. This can't be believed. Until they found a, some, a, like an ancient document in a city called Antioch that said that this guy was a two-term governor. Who knew they had those back then? <laughs> but he was governor when Jesus was alive, and he took his census when Jesus was born. And that's just one example of the many more examples that multiply again and again and again and again to show that this book we have is telling us the plain and simple truth. There was a, a skeptical, famous archaeologist who set out to disprove this book. His name was Sir William Ramsey. He lived over 100 years ago. He set out to, to show how unhistorical this book was. Here's his conclusion after many years of research. Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy, he's possessed of the true historic sense. He seizes the important and critical events and shows their true nature at greater length. While he touches lightly or omits entirely much that was valueless for his purpose. In short, this author should be placed among the very greatest of historians. And this is just one example and one historian and I don't have time to sit up here and multiply the examples. But here's another quote that I think summarizes what it's like to study the Bible and the historicity of it. This man writes, So the hammers of hostile unbelievers have been pecking away at this book for ages, but the hammers are worn out, and the anvil still endures. If this book had not been the book of God, men would have destroyed it long ago. Emperors and popes, kings and priests, princes and rulers have all tried their hands at it. They die, but the book lives. This book can be trusted. This book says things that people have not wanted to hear for years and do not want to hear today, and they have tried to destroy it, and they have failed. Now I want to talk about one other reason we can have certainty in this book. We've talked so far about the eyewitnesses. We've talked about the archaeology. Now I want to talk about what Luke means by an orderly account. Now what I think he means when he says that is that he orders his book in a way, but it's not simply like just telling a story like this happened and this happened and this happened and this happened. And I'm just going to plainly tell you Nothing but exactly a sequence of events. No, he, he, he is arranging his material carefully around a theme. Like he has a theme in his book. He is trying to speak to our hearts. He's going after our heads and our hearts with this book. He has a purpose that he's unfolding. And his material is all contributing to that purpose. And I ask you, what is the theme? What is he organizing his book around? And the answer is really simple. It's the Sunday school answer. It's Jesus. Jesus is his theme. And this is what I'm most excited about as we go through this book. That as we walk through this book week by week, that we would encounter Jesus. That we would encounter him. And that he would be so beautiful to us 
that there would be a ring of truth about this book. That, that your, your heart would feel like, man, Luke could not have made this up. This man is too beautiful. Like, this, this, I feel convicted. I feel my need for Jesus. And I want to believe in him. We're going to see that as we go through this book, he, he's a person who's unlike anyone you've ever met. Unlike anyone you've ever met. Sure, you know, you know people who will help you when you ask them, don't you? Like, we live in Minnesota. Like, of course, of course they'll, 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 they'll help you if you ask them. But do you know anyone, much less a king, who would come after you? When you're in your sin, when you're sinning against that person, and would come and find you where you're at, and have a meal with you, and restore you, speak gently to you, we find again and again, Jesus comes and finds sinners and shows them love. And we see this, friends, nowhere clearer than the cross. This is where Jesus finds sinners more than any other place. He, the king of heaven, hangs on a cross so that he could seek out and save even the worst sinner. Even the person who is furthest from God and has sinned the worst can be welcomed and received and rescued by Jesus. So as we read this book, this is the kind of Savior we're going to see and the kind of Savior we're going to become acquainted with. That's what we should be after. So often, we want certainty in a set of facts. Like, man, I, I know these facts. But what this book is after is certainty in a person. This isn't just a worldview or an argument to win. This isn't a dinner argument at the holidays. This is about a person that we know and trust. Like, I'm sure everyone in the room knows and is certain that George Washington exists. But it makes no difference. And if Jesus doesn't make any difference to you, then it doesn't matter if you believe in him. He has to be a person that you relate to and know. That's the kind of certainty that this book is after. I don't want us to have a kind of certainty that we're trained to have. In this world, we're trained to have mathematical and scientific certainty. And what's wrong with that is we just sit back passively and are either convinced of something or not convinced of something, but it doesn't involve us. It doesn't involve any act of faith, any act of confidence, any act of trust. I'm going to take the stool here. I'll set it. See, everyone see that's really close to the edge? That's pretty dangerous. Maybe not, but pretend it is. And I think the certainty that a lot of us are inclined to have about Jesus is, I believe that could hold me up. And then we stop there. We're not, we're not ready to actually let him hold us up. We're not actually ready to let him trust him and let him help us. And what we see in the book of Luke is Jesus keeps asking people for faith. 
Faith isn't a certainty that just knows things. Faith is a certainty that trusts someone. Not like your textbooks, but like your spouse or your best friend. You have a certainty that they're going to be there for you. You have a certainty that you can trust them. And what I just want to invite some of us to do right now is to take a seat. And trust and have certainty in Jesus as your Savior and as your closest helper and friend. I just wonder how many of us just know in our minds that Jesus is our Savior, but we're really not rejoicing in him in our hearts and thanking him. Jesus, thank you for saving me. I just wonder how many of us just know, know that Jesus hears our prayers, knows that Jesus answers our prayers, knows that Jesus works through prayer, and we don't pray. That's not the certainty he wants from you. He wants you to be so certain of him that you can't help but pray to him every day. And I just wonder how many of us know his Bible is true. Right now, you know he's telling you to do something and you're not doing it. You're disobeying. What does certainty look like if you know the Bible is true? It looks like obeying what he tells you. Friends, other people should be able to look at our lives and just figure out that this book is controlling us and shaping us and that our relationship with Jesus is the most important thing to us. Let's be a church where everyone here lives and believes like Jesus is real all the time. That there's not times and sections where he's real and times and sections where he's not. Have a certainty where we depend on him. Let us live in such a way that if he doesn't come through with us, we're done for. I just want to invite anyone who is not living like they're certain to start to do that. Now, I raised a question at the beginning of my sermon about how do we respond when we're not certain? What should we do? And um, and the first thing I want to say is do not look within yourself. That's the first place I often look. And it's the last place that I find hope is looking within myself. That's what all of us are wired and inclined to do because we want to be our own savior. Now I just want to point out a few ways that each of us end up looking within ourselves and looking for certainty and assurance that we can only find in Jesus. We base our assurance on, on how much of God's love you can feel at that moment. You base your assurance off of how much love you feel for God at that moment. Sometimes I do this. I base my assurance, and, and all of us do, off of whether or not we have put to death the sin that we have habitually been committing. 
And when we've gone a while without committing that sin, we have assurance. And then we, we commit that sin and ask, am I really a Christian? We base our assurance how, off of how good of a spouse or a parent we judge ourselves to be or have been lately. Or we base our faith on how strong we think our faith is. And as I look at this, I don't see anywhere where Luke recommends I look at me to find certainty. I don't see Ross in here. I don't see any of you either. You don't, you don't, you don't make an appearance here as awesome as you are. The first thing Luke says is I have eyewitnesses that I have interviewed and the clear record of history I have examined and that's an invitation for us to look outside of ourselves. This book is in plain and open evidence for anyone to test. It's testable, and it holds up, and it's verified. Why not base yourself on your faith and your assurance on something firm and unchanging rather than on something as fickle as your own feelings? Why not look to something that is firmer than yourself, higher than yourself, and hope in that, rather than looking in here. Now, I want to feel, and I want you to feel assurance. But I just don't want you to start by looking at your own feelings before you look at something that can actually give you those feelings. Don't look within yourself. Look without yourself to someone higher than yourself to find what you're looking for. There's another test that we have that as we walk through this book together. And that is that the man that we will discover on the pages of this book uniquely meets our needs like no one else does. Think about it. If Jesus is the Son of God, he will be able to satisfy your heart like no one else can. If he's really God. All of us have these yearnings that we share deep within our hearts. A yearning for a father who accepts and loves us unconditionally. A yearning for freedom from shame and guilt. And if as you read this book, you find Jesus encountering your heart and giving you those things, then you know you have to believe in him. Then you know he is who he says he is. If you feel Jesus, and he shows you to be someone who you can rely on because... He's unlike anyone else you've ever met. Then you can put your faith in him. Then you can put your trust in him. I want to make the point that no one here is an unbeliever. I just want to address anyone who's not yet following Jesus. Who might think, man, like you people have your faith, and I just live by evidence, and I'm not a believer. But here's what, here's what Tabidi Anabule says. We cannot live without belief of some sort. We may believe in God, or we may believe in a material universe that has no meaning. In either case, we are believers. There are no unbelievers in the world, just people who believe in different things. And the scary thing is, is that if you won't believe in Jesus, if you won't believe in this clear testable evidence that we have, then you're just coming up with 
beliefs from maybe your own thoughts or your own mind, or you're piecing together beliefs of different, or things from different belief systems. And I don't think that that's a wise way to live at all. He goes on. Do your beliefs offer you this kind of certainty? Do you really want to base your life and risk all of heaven or hell on your own thoughts? And friends, I just don't want anyone to do that. You see, we talk about something called the gospel a lot in this church, and that's that Jesus rescues sinners who trust in him. And if you refuse this evidence, if you refuse to believe in the gospel, he won't rescue you. He won't save you. And you can say, oh, I'm, I'm just not a religious person, or I just believe in evidence or logic. But the fact is, at the end of the day, you are trusting in something. And if that something isn't Jesus, it's something that you've invented. And that's no savior. That's something that cannot help you when you die. Please stop thinking about what other people think. It's not going to matter when you die. Jesus has shown himself that he is one we can trust in. And the plain record of history and his own life shows us that that is true. Now, we aren't called, friends, to risk following everything in Jesus. He's called us to risk and give up everything. But he did it first. Jesus gave up everything first. And his father took care of him. And his father will take care of you. And friends, we can have certainty together in this Jesus because of what he did, because of his life, death, and resurrection. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for sending your son Jesus so that we might not be kind of convinced or have a strong feeling, but so that we can be certain that Jesus is alive, that Jesus is reigning, that Jesus is worth following, that Jesus will help us. Would you please help anyone here today who is struggling with doubt or insecurity or in belief, unbelief to feel a fresh, brand new confidence in Jesus Christ like they have never felt before? So compelling, so strong that they just find themselves talking about it all the time to themselves, to others, to an unbelieving world. And please help that same Jesus to come and be present among us now as we worship him together. In Jesus' name, amen.